0: Thank you for visiting theopenword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of this series from Alan Schaefer.
1: Okay, so, so what's the big picture point so far that, that Paul's trying to get across here?
0: right.
1: Get the gift ready so that when I come, it's it's there. Um, I don't want you to make me look bad, right? Because I've been bragging about how, you know. And by the way, you guys have already promised this. So he's not like, you know, you already made the commitment to do this. Paul's just saying live up to the commitment you made. And just to ensure that no one could say that there's any funny stuff going on, we've got this guy that was elected by the churches to come along with me that everybody knows about. And will vouch for us, yes.
0: Is it, Paul also saying here too, like since they made the promise, he, since they committed to it, he really wanted to keep their word. Yeah. So like, if your prompt, your word is your bond. Yes. If you make that commitment, you really should live up to it.
1: Yeah. Now that's something that most Christians don't have a problem with, right? What's
0: that?
1: Uh, Living up to their promises. That's not true. <laughs> I'm saying that sarcastically. Oh, oh, okay. To a degree.
0: Does the severe letter fit in this timeline at all?
1: Like, well, the severe letter was written not not for the, the gift business, but because Paul was being trashed. His character and his intentions were being trashed by the false teachers. And that was going to unravel the work there in Corinth, you know. Because, again, one of the ways the false teacher gets their foot in the doors, they make the previous guy, you know, they trash him. So it makes them look good. Um but, but Paul saying here, you've made the commitment, live up to it. And by the way, just an aside, let's think about this. You make a commitment to God, keep it. Keep it. And um, Anna nice and the fire made a commitment, didn't keep it, right? That wasn't a good day for them. Um, yeah, God expects you to keep your word. You make a promise, keep it. All right. Um Then he said, but this I say, verse 6, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. What's it talking about there? What are you going to reap? What things are you going to reap, necessarily? Now, the false teachers on TBN will tell you that what you do is, you know, if you give them a hundred, God will give you a thousand back. Yeah, this old seed faith kind of stuff here. Um, let me ask you a question: If you gave God a hundred dollars, because He give back a thousand? That's sort of a good business deal, isn't it? Very
0: good. You know. Well, that's, that's even less. Though,
1: right? you, can, you know, like, really you know like, like like if He did that. Maybe I should give him a thousand, then I'll get back what, ten thousand? Then some smart Alex said, Well if those preachers really believe that, why don't they give me a thousand and God'll give them back ten thousand? But yeah, they don't usually say that.
2: Someone wrote a book about
1: that. Huh?
0: Someone wrote a book about that. Yeah. Like that's a I said that. So
1: not again, it's so it's not. Look, and again, that goes back to why are you giving to God? Are you giving to God because you're going to get? Yes.
0: Yeah.
1: Do you give to God because you're going to get? No. No, of course not. You know, now now there there is there is a sense in which when we are generous with God, he is generous with us, not in a sense of Maybe financial wealth, but certainly in joy, in, in in the the joy of the relationship with God, with Him. There's 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 things that go beyond just giving. But see, th- this goes back, folks. This this is where this is where sin has got us so screwed up. Because sin is by definition, I give in order to get. Okay. Whereas biblical giving is you give in order to give, whether you get or not. All right. God gave the most precious thing he could give. And that's the point. No matter what you give God, you're never going to be able to come. You're not going to even make a make a blip on what he's given you. And it, it goes back to the motive. It's, it's, and that's why, you know, this 10 percent business is just so distressing to me a lot of times. It, why are you giving to God? Well, I got to give God 10% because if not, he won't bless me. Well, you know, that's... Then why are you giving it? Do you think God really wants that? Does God want your money because you're obligated to give it to him? He don't care about it to and, you're begrub- and you're begrudging about it? He wants your heart. He wants your heart. And that's what Paul says here. So let each one give as he what purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, or of necessity. What does it mean? What's the, if you give grudgingly? What's that talking about there? I don't want to give, but I gotta give something, or the preacher will be all after me. You know, that's 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 the grudging gift. Or of necessity, what's that? Yeah. Give because you want to. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. What does it mean by giving grudgingly or um, necessity? Well, giving grudgingly or of necessity, um, the idea really necessity is compulsion. Don't give because you really don't want to, but you're gonna give it anyways. Or don't give because somebody's holding a gun to your head <laughs> out of compulsion, you know, out of a guilt trip, basically. You know, the pastor's saying, if you don't give your 10%, the deacon's going to be knocking at your door this and Yeah, look, look, you don't need that. Or, okay.
2: You know, cool. up right next to two people. Sure. Uh,
1: and see the whole point here is it goes back yeah. to heart 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 that's all that, that if you get anything out of this passage you get out of the passage that God wants you to give to him not because you have to not because you are under compulsion not because you're on some guilt trip not because you really don't want to give him, but you're going to give it anyways. Because you feel if you don't, he's going to be mad at you. But you give him because you love him. You give to him because you love him. And isn't that how you want people to give something to you? You know, I I want Donna to, to make nice meals for you. Not because she has to, but because she wants to. Because she enjoys to. She, because it... It's her act of giving, you know, and she wants me to to give her things, not because I have to, because I love her. I want to give it to her. And that's the same way with God. God doesn't need, you know, God does not need your money. He really doesn't. God needs your money. No. God wants your heart. And if your heart is right, the money will follow. And how much do you give? What did you say here? It's what you purpose in your heart. It's not it's not some external percentage or dollar figure. What has God laid on your heart to give? So, with that in, in mind, what what is one of the principles of giving you can you can get here? Go with, the right, attitude. Go with the right attitude, joyfully. And you should purpose beforehand, right, what you should give. It should not be um, knee-jerk giving or guilt-trip giving, but it should be thought out ahead of time. And give it cheerfully. And you know what? If you have trouble giving it cheerfully, what should you do? Keep it or ask God to help you have a right attitude change your heart
0: yeah i think that applies to people that you know to saves maybe going in and they're not even aware of giving you know sometimes people never never givers the whole life and then they're giving and i'm like why should i give and then they start questioning and then that scripture i think as a pastor i have to help people because you know, mm-hmm. they're like I, I don't understand the giving why do you
1: you give money to the things that you love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you love fast cars, what are you going yeah. to do? You're going to... What? Yeah. No, I mean, if, if assuming you have the wherewithal, if you love fast cars, you're going to buy fast cars. If you love nice clothes, you're going to buy nice clothes. You know, you put, what did did Christ say? Where your money is, there will your heart be also. You can tell where people's heart is by how they spend their money. If you love God, where should your money go? That way. doesn't mean that you can't have nice things. But those are not the end. Paul's saying, give because you want to. Give what God has laid on your heart to give. And by the way, ask God to to put it on your heart. You know, and and, and give that amount. And do it cheerfully. Because why? Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Here's the other thing. Here, can you outgive God? No. See, with God, it's an issue here. God says, "Ultimately, does God owe us anything? No, He doesn't. But God does not. God is under obligation to no man, and God will not allow Himself to be under obligation to anyone. And by that, what I'm trying to, what I, what I mean by that, and I think what Paul's bringing out here, is when you have a proper, generous, loving gracious heart towards God, you can't outdo Him. You can't outgive Him. Because no matter what you give to Him, you're going to have an abundance in return. Yeah. God's going to make all grace abound to you so that you will have all that you need. You can't outgive God. And maybe what God's going to do is change your appetites. Right? Maybe you're going to find out that you can be happier with less. But you can be happy. You can be happy. You're not going to outgive God. God will take care of you. Uh, Matthew 6, or yeah, Matthew um, 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what's Christ saying? Christ talking about money there. He says, you know, the heathen worry about what they're going to wear, and they worry about what they're going to eat. He says, well, look at the flowers of the field. Anybody dress up like one of them? Look at the birds. Do they worry about what they're going to eat? No, God takes care of them. He says, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God will take care of your physical needs
2: to come
1: to me yeah I'll take care of you guys not God's not gonna let you starve to death and Paul is saying God will make all grace abound to you that and by the way just understand that that's not talking about physical wealth as the TBN boys tell you that's not what it's talking about Because if that was the case, then everybody, you know, Wall Street would be lining up giving these guys money. Why isn't, you know, if I was a Wall Street broker and I could give somebody ten bucks and get a hundred back, that's a pretty good return on investment. You know, why aren't, why isn't Wall Street lining up giving these guys money? Why? Because it's not true, right? It's not true. So I to my daughter to go to
2: management school, freshman. She always say. I'm a millionaire, a millionaire. I love money. Always singing. So I I talked to her. My daughter named John. John, listen to me. Don't want to be a millionaire. Don't think about that way. You're going to be a good person. Good personality, good skill people. So you're learning people. But the college to teach you, you're learning. Money automatically follow you. Yeah, that's why i teach
1: changing my daughter. I don't want. Change your right now. I don't want anything that God does not want me to have. And He's not giving me. I want. I What I have, the things I have. I want. I want to be satisfied with my portion. Like I said, I. You pray and ask God, you know, help me to be satisfied with my portion, whatever that is. Whatever amount of money you've given me, let me live within my means, recognizing you as the source. Be generous with what you've done. And you know what? I'm a happy person. I'm, I, you know, you tell your daughter, one, one man, I think Chuck Swindoll was saying he was talking to this one guy who says, you know, Chuck, he said, I've spent my entire life climbing the corporate ladder. When I to find out when I got to the top, it was leaning against the wrong wall. You know, I think it was Swindoll that said that. And I said, you know, you spend your entire life chasing things, only when you come to the end, what does Solomon say? It's all vanity and vexation of spirit. You know, and, and you know, you, you look at the, the lifestyles of the rich and famous and there's a part of you that says, boy, I wish I had the money or whatever. Do you really? Look at Britney Spears. That late, she's going to be dead before 30. She's going to follow Nicole Smith, Anna Nicole Smith. Woman who has everything in the world and yet nothing. Absolutely nothing. She's, she absolutely nothing. Folks, money, money is not where it's at. And and, and part of the reason God wants us to learn to give is because when we give, we become unselfish, right? Giving is the opposite of self. When I give, I'm learning to go against my nature, which is take. What sin tell you? Give me, me, mine, more. Learn to be satisfied with what you have. You know, most of us have enough. That's my problem. One of of my goals, one of my goals this year, in fact if you all come back next fall you have the right to ask me how I did on this. One of my goals this summer is to de-junk my life. Donna has a lot of clothes that she's grown out of. Now don't let her know that. All right. And my clothes have shrunk too. All right. (laughs) And I, we've got we've got probably ten boxes of these clothes, and you know we put them away. And say, ah, you know someday we'll be skinny and we'll fit into them again. Yeah, right. You know, I hear that's not the way it works. Um, gonna give them away. Why? It's just piling up. What do you do with it? You just pile. Up. Now you gotta go and buy these you store it places to put all your junk in because you're you don't have enough room in your garage. You know, I, I remember I built. Somebody told me when you build a garage, you have to build it twice as big to, to get a half, and it's half of what you need, ultimately. You know, I built an 18 by 24 garage. I said, so, why? Wow, oh, this room to store my. It's full. Yeah, you know, it, it, it just. It's like a hard disk on a computer. No matter how big it is, you fill it up, you know. Um, look, folks, you know, we need to learn as, as Christians. When do we have enough? I have enough. I don't want more. I, I have enough, Father. Because then what can you do? You can take the excess and give it. I don't need a bigger house. My house is plenty big. I don't need a bigger car. It's plenty big. We have enough. And Paul is saying learn to give. And you can't out-give God. No matter what you give God, the blessings that come back... The joy, the 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 just the the privilege of giving to him has value beyond anything you can put a dollar figure on. Verse nine as it is written. He has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Disperse it. Proverbs says, There's a man who gives away everything, and yet he has everything he needs, and another man who stores it all and is and poverty, or something like that. It's funny, um, you know. Somebody asked Rockefeller how much you need, and he said, Yeah, just a little more. I had millions, billions of dollars. How much you need? Yeah, I need just a little bit more. We need to really stop and think about that. You know, a lot of us think, well, you know, if I get. If I can save one hundred thousand dollars towards my retirement, that's it. I, I've got. It. I've made. It's made. And then you get one hundred thousand. Guess what? You need another one hundred thousand. And then you get that. What do you get? I
0: need
1: another one. Need another one. And after a while, you know, you, 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 the point is, it, it, you, you're chasing something you'll never catch. You think if I just have this, I'm happy. You get that, and guess what? yeah you're not happy
0: yeah.
1: it's over the next till you're not happy gotta have, Got have more you don't need more be content with what you have be content with such things that you have Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain mm-hmm. now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness not And again, this is not talking about physical wealth. This is talking about spiritual blessings. When you learn to give to others, God enriches you spiritually beyond measure. While you're enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God for the administration of the service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but is also abounding through many thanksgivings to God. You want to to be like God, learn to give, right? Who do you hang around with? You hang around with people who are like you, right? God wants people to hang around him who want to give like he gives. Look at what God gives to the sinner. The beauty of the earth, uh, the bountifulness. And Paul's saying, learn to learn to be giving with Thanksgiving, and you know. I, and I and I think another thing here is, it, and I were talking, we're beating this around the beating this horse to death here, but I think it's important. One of the greatest sins I think as believers we can have is to be ungrateful. I think that's a great sin. Because when you're ungrateful, what are you saying? God, you've not given me enough. You owe me more. That's what you're saying, really, right? When you're ungrateful. When you're ungrateful, you're it's like slapping God in the face saying, You didn't give me enough. I want more.
0: I have a friend whose kids were whining about this or that, you know, about their life, and what was being. You told them, you know, you wake up and you're in America and you're healthy. You're already woken up, got out of bed at an eight out um, of ten. So yeah, <laughs> they thought they were right. It was about
1: a three. So it's a and here's the point: as believers, and look, you've got to train yourself to do this. I like think all of us in here need to train ourselves to thank God for everything. I'm when I'm driving in to work, I thank God that I have a place so I can go work. You know what you know and in, in every you know there are days when I don't want to go there but I'm thankful I have a place to work and I'm thankful that my car runs well and I'm thankful that I have the mental abilities to do the job I have and I'm thankful that I have the energy and the opportunity to do that and I thank God for the food I eat and I've often sat down and in in You know, I say, Father, not not only do I thank you for the food, but I'm thankful that I have an appetite that can enjoy it. You know? And and, and he's saying, well, that sounds silly and stupid, you know, doing that. You know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to train myself to be thankful to God for every single thing. Because everything outside of eternal hell is a plus. And, and, And we need to train ourselves as Christians to be thankful and grateful for everything. We can look at what we don't have. And that's what the kids do. And they look and say, well, you know, I don't have that new whatever, whatever, you know. But look at what you do have. And, and and I like that song, Count Your Many Blessings. Name them one by one. It will surprise you what God has done. Count your blessings.
2: Usually, uh, I go to the hospital, I always thank God more. I go sometimes. It's cancer, the lot Other cancer people know hair. They sit down. They, I look at it, and then when I get out of the hospital, oh, I'm happy, you know.
1: Thank God, and of, and, and, and what it is, what it is is just is just to generate within us a constant attitude of gratefulness. So that, and, and if you do that, then what happens is when you don't like get what. Some people think you have... It doesn't bother you. You're not all upset because you don't have the latest, fastest car or the fastest computer. I wish I had a faster computer. No, no. See? You know, the, you know, you buy the computer and a week after you buy it, there's a better one out there, you know? But the whole point is you, you learn... You know, it, it could be the silliest things, thanking God to be able to sit on the back porch and enjoy the day i've done that and i thank god that i'm able to eat a bowl of soup for my lunch i'm thankful i have the appetite to eat it and the privilege of sitting down and and having the money to buy it and 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 being able to enjoy that and it's just it's just i think that pleases god when we learn to be thankful and and then and then we don't gripe and whine and Moan about what we don't have. Look at the Israel. I mean, you know, if I was a God, I would have wiped those people out. I I would have taken Moses up on it and just say, you know, I'm going to wipe them out and start over again with you, Moses. You know, I mean, look at God did everything for this people, and all they did was, we don't have any water. Oh, we wish we had the leeks and onions and garlic of Egypt. Now, that wasn't because they ate the leeks and onions and the garlic, but it was the condiments, right? It was the Good food. It was the delicacies of Egypt that they were looking at. That's what they wanted. And why don't we have to eat this man? You know. And I, you look, you see how God got so angry with Himself. I'm going to do. I'm going to wipe these people out. I can't make them happy. It is. And that's why we have to. Go against it. We have to learn to be grateful and thankful for everything. And when we get to that point, we can give because we're thankful. Anything we have is a gift of God, and we don't hold on to it. We don't become. We got to kill this selfishness within us. This more, 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 bigger, better, faster. We got to kill that. It
0: just goes so counter
1: culture. It does.
0: We're that yes. from the time that, you know kids are born yeah. they're
2: it's just like the exodus, you know? They, yeah. The escaped the escape, the wilderness, they are always groaning,
1: you know? They and that, Yeah, and
2: that's God, what... God, you know, So for 40
1: years, you know, the... God, yeah, I don't know why God didn't wipe them out. I guess it goes back to His grace, you know, that they didn't death. wipe them out.
2: Always groaning. Oh, I'm gonna go back to Egypt. <laughs> Better than here, you know? Always something complained. So that's why God, 40 years, they... Wrong,
1: right? As believers, we have no right to complain to God about anything. We gotta learn that. We gotta train ourselves. We gotta go against the culture. We got we gotta train ourselves to to not buy into the, the mentality of the culture. And that's the problem. We buy into the mentality. I have a nice car. I drive a Grand Marquis, but I don't need a Lincoln fully loaded. I don't. And it's you know it's okay to have a nice thing, but that's not where that's that's not that's not the goal. And, and if you have something nice, thank God that you have it. Be thankful for it. Appreciate it. Take care of it. That's another one. Take care of it. If you you know take care of your vehicle. Take you know I have a Christian friend of mine who you know the walking illustration and. You know, well, you know, I, it's not, I, I need to be reading my Bible instead of mowing my yard. Well, part of being a Christian is taking care of that which God has given us. We're, we're, again, what are you? You're a steward. You're a steward. Learn to be thankful. Learn to be grateful. And then when, when these opportunities to give come along, it's no big deal to you to give. It's a joy for you to give because you're not indulging yourself. you you're, you're. you're if you if somebody needs it and you have it, give it. It's, it's a joy. Learn to de-junk your life. Because what did God do? God gave up everything. Christ gave up everything.
2: Also giving, to somebody giving, also God says, increase the righteousness. The righteousness mm-hmm. is going up.
1: Get yep. mm-hmm.
2: give it. yeah. It's not bad.
1: Verse 12, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but it's also bounding through many thanksgivings to God while through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's start, look at through verse 14. What's he saying? As you generously give to Those Christians in need, they are thanking God and praising God for your generosity towards them. And it's a win-win. They're learning to be grateful for your provision for them. They're thanking God for that. And God is blessing you for allowing them to pray for you. It's a win for everybody all the way around. And why is that? Well, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That word there, indescribable, means indescribable. You can't put it in words. Yeah, you can't describe it. And and, and it, you know what? What I'll tell you, if there's anything that keeps me up at night, and, and it, it, this is always going through my mind as I pray, pray at night, you know, before I go to sleep, and I'm thinking and meditating and praying, it's like. You know, God, why did you ever choose me? I can't. I know that here. But think about that. Stop Stop in your quiet moments and ponder that. What if God had not chosen you and you had no desire for spiritual things? And you die, and what happens? Eternal night. I mean, I cannot get over why God exhibited grace to me. And I often th- thought about, you know, even after a billion or trillion or quadrillion years in heaven, I won't get any closer to an answer, I don't think. And when that when that really sinks into your head, how can you be ungrateful for anything? If God took away everything you had, what would you give in exchange for your soul? That's what Christ said. What's it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? If God took away everything and all I had was my relationship with him, I would be wealthy beyond comprehension and belief. I think
0: David speaks
1: of in the psalm says, The Lord's my God is the reward. See, we seek for God the rewarder. That's the TBN boys. God the rewarder. Go after God, he's going to dole it out. You know, Cadillacs and Lincolns and money and all that other stuff. God is not the rewarder, God is the reward. God is the reward, not the stuff. And I, I tell you folks, I, I can't I cannot get it through my head. And the more I think about it, the more I'm in wonder and awe that God would have ever given me the time of day. And and, and the more I ponder that and the more I think about it, the more I'm brought face to face with the realization that. I can't, I, nothing I can do would would pay for that. I, I can't. And I come to the realization that anything I have outside of hellfire right now is infinitely a gift beyond measure. And I think we'll spend all of a heaven trying to figure this out, eternity trying to understand this, and we'll never get the answer That's what makes God so great and so wonderful. And when you get that in, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. How can you describe it? There's no words. You you have no words. you, You can't. Our finite minds cannot even comprehend what we have. The value of our relationship with God is something of such infinite value that we can't even comprehend just the worth of it. We can't. It's indescribable. How can you not give? How can you not give? Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in the presence when am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. Paul's being a little bit facetious here. Um, one of the problems, one of the accusations that Paul had is from the false teachers, said, well, you know, Paul, he writes these nasty letters and he rakes you over the calls, and he comes in he's a big wuss when he shows up. You know, he talks a big game. But then, when he shows up, he's just a big pansy. I mean, that was really their accusation there. And Paul's being sarcastic here, saying, "Oh yeah, right." You know, now he he wrote a nasty letter to him, didn't he? The, not I shouldn't say nasty; It was the severe letter. And see, people say, "Yeah, you know, Paul, big man." You know, when you're not around, but as soon as you show up, he runs for cover. Paul is saying, um, "I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence." By which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as though we walked according to the flesh. Paul's in this section here. Paul's going to begin this section, and it runs into chapter 11 and 12, where he's defending his apostleship, basically saying, "I am what I am." So, like Popeye, all right. One of the marks of integrity is what? Well, you're in private what you are in public. OK, and there's a lot of people that talk a big game when there's nothing on the line. But then when something's on the line, they go changing their tune. And that's what they were saying about Paul. He talks a big game when he's not face to face with you guys, when he can write a letter and ship it across the Aegean Sea. Um, he, he's a big guy, you know, but once he shows up now, he's going to be, you know, meek and he's not much to look at. And he's a weak guy and he's just, uh, you know, a little frail and who you afraid of kind of thing. And Paul's saying, you know, that's that's not the way this this is. And he's going to speak against these detractors coming up here in eleven or in chapter eleven here, and twelve, where he starts talking about his apostleship. And he's saying, you know, I'm not I'm not being bold outside and then weak when I show up. He would have been he'd have been bold with them when he showed up. Look at Galatians 2. Remember when he stood up to Peter, talked him down. Peter, remember what happened? Well, uh, Peter was ministering with the Gentiles and eating with them. Then the delegation of the Jews showed up from Jerusalem. What did Peter do? Well, he withdrew himself. Not to rattle the fellow Jews. And Paul jumped them and said, What are you doing? That's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. You are what you are. You know. Um, and then there's a very, very important thing here in verse three, four, and five that we all need to understand. This is spiritual warfare. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. What do you? Th- when, when you when you walk in the flesh in the, in the how do you put it? Um, walking in the flesh is what. The only- yeah, you, our secular life—we we walk in the flesh, but we don't war after the flesh. Now he's making a segue here between what they're accusing him of and a very important concept here, and that is our warfare. Our spiritual warfare is against what? It's
0: not with people.
1: It's not with people. It's with ideas. It's with false systems of belief. And our, warf, our weapons as believers are not fleshly weapons. What are, what are some of the fleshly weapons that Christians use nowadays? Hey. Well, backbiting, complaining.
0: Oh.
1: Huh? Worldly wisdom. Worldly. Justification. Um, how does the world fight? Yeah. Um, in, in the arena of ideas, how does the world fight? Discredit, um, lawsuits, uh, protest marches, uh, mudslinging, whatever. You know. I, I. You know. What I'd like to do is get in a time capsule and go ahead about two years and skip the presidential election. Ma, sheesh. I'm going to swear off news for a year and a half until it's all over, you know. But think about it. How, when we face a spiritual problem, when we face an issue in our lives, how do most Christians fight? The same way the world does, right? The same way the world does. Is that the way we are to fight our, our battles? How are we to fight them? With prayer. A spiritual. It's a spiritual battle. It's not, we walk in the flesh, we don't war after the flesh. We live in the flesh, we're all there, but we don't fight spiritual battles in the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. What's a stronghold? A, a fortified place. And and what are these strongholds that Paul is talking about here? Arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. What are the strongholds? What are some of the what are some of the strongholds that we have nowadays? Evolution is a stronghold. Think about it. It's just a given. Everybody believes in evolution, right? And if you don't, you're whacked. And if you're a Christian, you got to go along with what uh, Hugh Ross and believe in progressive creationism or day-age theory, so that at least you don't look like a total buffoon when you're talking to people.
0: There's no absolute
1: we are living in a postmodern culture now that's one that that's what's killing us now postmodern you know what postmodernism is mm-hmm. uh, um relativism. relativism run amok um the, the, the basic mantra of the, of the um postmodern people is you can't be certain about anything there is no certain truth so your
0: truth is just as good as my truth <clears throat>
1: You know that at Oberlin College, right? That's about the that that's the postmodern mecca of this whole area. And in fact, the greatest virtue is to honestly say, I don't know whether it's right or not. I, I can't be certain. And when somebody stands up and says, "Well, thus says the Lord," they say, "Well, that guy he you know that's horrid that he would." How dare he think that he knows what God says? How dare he? In fact, one of the guys in the postmodern movement, there's a big postmodern church movement um, led by McLaren and a bunch of other yo-yos. And one of the guys wrote and says, uh, well, preaching is dead. He said, why why should I listen to some guy stand up and talk to me for 30 minutes? Why don't I get to talk? (laughs) And he said, preaching is a violent act. It's an assault against a person's self-worth that someone would actually tell them what they should believe and think. That's postmodernism, folks. Emergent church. Emergent church. And what MacArthur said, he, I like the way MacArthur said, he said, my problem is not that they're called emergent. My problem is that they're called a church. Because <laughs> in the emergent church, anything goes. It's, what's your story? You know, how... how Tell me about your story with God. You know, we, we're all, we all have our different approaches. And, you know, your truth and your spin is different than mine. And there is no such thing as absolute truth. And I can't impose my truth values on you. That would be to violate your dignity as a person. And how do I know that I'm right? That's one of the strongholds that we have going on nowadays. There's no place for truth. And one of the things as believers that we need to stand against is this, this, this pressure to capitulate to the mind of the world and the thoughts of the world and the views of the world. We can't do that. And we're going to be increasingly be seen as albatrosses. We're going to be seen as people out of step. We're going to be seen as backwards as arrogant that's the one of the big things you know how arrogant of you to think that you know what God says how arrogant of you to tell me that I'm going to hell what gives you the right to tell me what to do that's what's going on today and how do you fight that how do you fight error with truth and where do you get it this This is this is it. Now, is it true that we can't know everything for certain? Sure, there's a lot of things we can know for certain, right? There's a lot of things that certainly we can know. And just because I can't know everything for certain, doesn't mean I can't know some things for certain. And by the way, just to to wrap this all up, how, how do you know truth anyhow? The spirit of truth gives you understanding. It's not your brain, after all. It's God who gives you the understanding. And what we have nowadays is we have a society, we have a world that's being brought up where there are no absolutes. And that is why, for example, and I firmly believe that, that is why the average American does not comprehend They don't comprehend Islamic fascism. It does not make any sense because they don't understand people who believe in absolute right and wrong. Now they got the wrong right and wrong, but at least they believe in right and wrong. We look at somebody who straps a bomb to themselves and goes into a market and blows himself up as a nut job. They see it as a virtuous thing to do. Why? Because in their system it is. And the average American, and, and 999 of all the TV newspaper, newsmen, commentators, don't comprehend that mentality because we've been brought up in a postmodern culture where there are no absolute truths. Nothing is for certain. Everything is a big, gray, wishy-washy, whatever you want it to be. And the greatest virtue in America today is to not stand for anything cannot say this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. You can't do that. And that is a stronghold that we need to assault with the truth of the Word of God. It's not with carnal means. We don't do it by, by legislation. We don't do it by protests. We don't do it by a letter-writing campaign. We do it by using spiritual tool, tools. What is our spiritual tools? Prayer and truth. And there's a pressure nowadays to not stand for anything. It is. It's out there. Look at the average TV show. People live together. That's that's normal. Now, 50 years ago, they would have been run out of town. It's normal. They wouldn't even show a toilet on TV in the 1960s. I Dream a Genie. They wouldn't show her belly button. I didn't know if you knew that. You go back and look at every I Dream a Genie show. They'll never see her navel because that was verboten in 1960s. What? Seven, eight, nine? When that was? I don't know, run there. The censors wouldn't let it pass. You know that's that's tame compared to what you see now on the show, on TV. But what has happened? We have slid into you know, when you talk to people in the workplace, and you try to talk to them about absolute truth, they look at you like, "Geez, you know, they let, they let people like you out of that place." Did you forget to take your meds this morning? See, because there are no absolutes. The culture, there's no absolutes. Paul's saying, you know, we, our weapons, our warfare are, we we're fighting a spiritual battle, and really, what is Satan? What, what, what is behind Satan's question to Eve? What was it? Why would God be so mean as to not let you do what you want? Well, you know, if He really loved you, you know, he, He'd let you do what you wanted to do, and she bought it. Yeah, bad ideas. Question God. Question God's authority. He really said that. You think he'd really be that mean and rotten and ornery to to do that? I was listening to um, Al Mohler, who's uh, this, the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary down, I think Lexington, Lexington or Louisville. I can't remember which one. It's, they both start with L, so it's one of them. Um he has a radio program and he was talking about whatever happened to hell. You know, hell's disappeared from our vocabulary. And it's interesting because one of the ladies called up and she says, I'm a Christian, I don't believe in hell, and I don't believe God would ever send somebody to hell. And I consider it an offensive to even think that God would do something like that. That'd be horrible and blah, 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 blah. You know. And all he tried to do is say, Well, you know what, you know, the Bible says yada, well, I don't believe that, so I don't believe God would do that. You know, and and What was was going on there? Well, we have people who define reality by what they think, not by what the Bible says. And as believers, we need to fight against that. You know, one, one of the things, we need to be committed as people, men and women, to the truth, not to some personal ego thing. You know there are people that you know you can't tell them they're wrong because they, their ego blows up in, the, in their face. Which where's your where's your true allegiance, your ego or the truth? You know and, and that's why you know like in my classes and I, I encourage discussion and you don't have to agree with me because I'm not going to stay up at night saying oh my gosh Brenda doesn't agree with me oh I don't know what I'm going to do you know. You know. Ham instead of steak, how could she, you know? But because I'm committed and I would hope I'm more committed to the truth than I am to my own little personal ego. And I'll tell you what, that's that's desperately needed in the pastoral realm. Because a lot of pastors have a their heads are a lot bigger than their churches are sometimes. You know, when, when somebody questions something they believe, it's like you know, you're, it's like you're, right. you're 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 assaulting the Trinity or something like that. And you know, and it, you got very too much of the ego, folks. We need to be committed to the truth of the Word of God. You know, if I'm wrong, I hope somebody points it out to me. Why? Because I want to be right. I don't I don't need this salve my ego by having everybody agree with me. Our commitment should be to the truth, to the Word of God, and not to our own personal little agendas. Because when we, when we fall into our own little ego, we fight the way the world fights. We fight the battles the way the world is fighting them. And that's not the way we win as Christians. We win by allowing God to fight the battle with spiritual means, prayer, truth, our character. And to not compromise, to not bow to the current fad of the world. You know, the the stuff in the world, it comes and goes, doesn't it? I mean, it, you know, if you try to figure out what is right and wrong, well, it depends on what age you're born in, right? Depends on what kind of people you hang around with. The word of God never changes. It is eternal truth. Paul saying, you know, I am fighting battles by casting down what is it, is first five arguments and every high thing that exalt itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought captive to what? The word of God, the The truth of God, bringing everything back to this. The word here, thoughts, is speculation, reasoning, philosophies, false religions. How do you deal with Mormonism? Truth Truth of the word of God. Now, here's the point. Here's one of the things, okay? I really think this is true. Um, I think it was Martin Luther who said, and, and and I'm not quoting him, Exactly here by any stretch of the imagination. But he says, if if I am doing, if I am practicing every Christian virtue, but not confronting error, where error is taught, I'm not doing what I should be doing. I'm, I'm not obeying Christ. I need to attack error where error is being taught, not to dance around it. Okay? So that means when the Mormons show up, you don't need to dance around all their weird little beliefs. Go right at the heart of the matter. Who is Jesus? When the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door, what do you do? You don't dance around how many whether you take a blood transfusion or allegiance to the American flag or other something like that. Who is Jesus? Go right at go right at the error. Attack the error head on. That's how you do this. You don't win by a, you know, it's like fighting a war but never attacking the other guy's army. You know, you, you go at the army. You go you go where the error is. Yeah, and that, and that's what we have to do here. Go where the error is at. Bringing thought every, bring into captivity every thought, catching all of these speculations and bringing them all into obedience to what the Word of God says to the truth of the Scripture. This is the standard, not my spin on things. This is the standard. And unfortunately, even when you try to do that, people say, well, that's your opinion of what the Bible says. Well, so what? Don't let them back you into a corner. The Word of God is authoritative. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Look, folks, let's go after the error. Let's confront error. And and see, that's why, for example, Hugh Ross, and you guys remember when he took Genesis, guy just irritated the living daylights out of me. Because it's like, you don't have to capitulate. Hugh Ross believes in the day-age theory. Mm -hmm. Day-age. In other words, the first day of creation was a long drawn out geological age of billions of years maybe oh, the gap the, not even the gap theory. it's beyond that it's like and, and all the evolutionary processes God used all these evolutionary processes in in the process of creation so you know the, the the seven or the six days of creation really took place over billions of years of evolution as God sort of worked the kinks out of the system kind of thing all right you don't have to buy into that theistic evolution. Theistic evolution. You've got an omnipotent, all-powerful God. Why would He take a billion years to evolve a frog when He could just speak it into existence? It's ridiculous. It's a capitulation. And then he, the flood says, "Well, you know, it wasn't a global flood. It was a local flood." I and mean, that was his big thing. Then why did you know? Why couldn't He just told Noah to just walk a, walk around to the other side of the Earth? I mean, He could have done that a lot faster. In 100, it wouldn't take you that. You know, it may take you a couple of years to make that trip, but it wouldn't take you 120.
0: I don't know, but then they say that, that like, say, when Cain um, left the
1: land, he went
0: somewhere else and start family and stuff like that. You know what I'm talking about? No. I mean, I came, but yeah,
1: Cain. Yeah. He went to the land of Nod, a land of wandering. God erased all the life on the earth. It was a global flood. Everything drowned. What's so hard about that? What's the Bible say? So it got erased and that the word there, interesting it means to erase like you erase a a a a, a, a pant, parchment of writing.
0: Wait, put I'm I'm on about like life this this life before the,
1: the, 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 the um, somebody just made that up. That's a capitulation to modern thought. There's no evidence. There's no evidence that life existed prior. Here's here I'll give you a good answer to that. When did death end of the world? when did death enter the world oh, yeah. Yeah. right so before Adam's sin was there any death in the world no. okay so evolution is dead because what's the engine of evolution yeah. survival of the fittest nothing died Evolution the process there is no that's that somebody made that up because they wanted to fit here's the here's the point it's being made here when you try to take the Bible, and make it compatible with some screwy notion that man has come up with, which one loses? The Bible does all the time. What I mean by that is when I take the scripture and I try to marry it up with the theory of evolution, what do I wind up with? Theistic evolution. I don't wind up with the truth. I wind up with something not truth. Because I want, you know, I don't want people to think I'm a nut job. Because I actually, you know, you, you, so you really believe that God created all the animals in a single day? Yeah, I, be, I believe that.
0: So if somebody were to say that, you know, how would you, you know, who would your
1: response be? My response would be, what does the Bible say? This is my authority.
0: I mean, when they say, like, you know, well, who did Cain? I mean, how did Cain start a family? Who was no other people besides?
1: He married a sister. So There's no genetic mutation. No he married a sister. He married. The the, sister or a cousin? Yeah, the course prohibitions course. against familial marriage didn't come until much, much later. Abraham, Sarah was Abraham's half sister. You know, it was normal back then. That's why they're
2: always talking no, about genealogy. Yeah, I, but you know. That's why they were writing down genealogy. Part of his rib, you know? I mean, that's. Yeah.
1: But but the, but the point. See, they try to throw these out. Say, ah, gotcha, gotcha. No, you don't got me. Yeah, you don't got me. The, yeah. And all you can do, and see, and see, this is what I think Paul's getting. At. All you do is bring back the Bible says this. The Bible says this. The Bible says this. Keep bringing them back to the book. All right, back to the, this is the word of God. This is the standard. And the problem is what we want to do is we want to desperately have our Bible, but we want to be accepted by the evolutionary boys down the road. All right. You don't have to. They're wrong. How long did it take God to create the world? He said it took him six days plus a seventh of rest. How did he do it? I don't know how he did it, but he did it. He's infinite. He's powerful. And how come God created the plants a day before he created the sun, moon, and stars? How did the plants live before? They they, they survived the geological age before light showed up. Folks, you don't have, the point is you don't have to capitulate. All I'm trying to get, you don't have to capitulate to the thinking of the world. You don't have to do that. And the way you confront error is you confront it head on with the truth of the word of God. This is your standard, you got it. It's a devolution, not evolution. We're winding down, not winding up.
0: man coming from a beast to man, man God like a beast. That's
1: right.
2: Verse
1: Yeah. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself. that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification, and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and a speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such will we also be in deed when we are present. You think I'm bad when I write a letter. Wait till I show up. And what is Paul doing? Paul's talking about those who are impugning his motives. You just look at the outward appearances. How are you looking at? Just external? Look at the internal. And that, See, that Paul was a person of integrity. What Paul was... And when he was present with you is what he was when he was absent with you. And what were they saying? Well, yeah, his letters are indeed weighty and severe. And well, when he shows up, he's just going to be a big pushover. He's a cream puff. Don't worry about him. His bark is worse than his bite. And Paul's saying, no, that's not the case at all. And what Paul is doing here, he's directly attacking the error that the false teachers are, are giving him. Right at their thinking. They are making accusations against Paul. And Paul's saying, If you think you're in Christ, I'm in Christ too. And I have authority, but I'm not using it for your destruction. I'm using it for your well being. What authority did Paul have? He was commissioned by Christ. And Paul's saying, I'm not using my authority to beat you guys and to hurt you guys and to take advantage of you guys. I'm using it for your well being. Even though I'm being told, yeah, he talks a big game when he's not present, but wait till he shows up, he'll just be a a pushover, a wuss. I'm saying that won't be the case. When I show up, I'm going to be to you, and when I'm present, just what I am when I'm absent. Now that's something we've got to practice in our integrity, right? Because you know it's easy for us to say, yeah, you know, if I was over there, I'd do that. And then we show up and we turn into. You know, pansies or whatever. You know. Learn to be a person of integrity. Be what you are in absent, what you are in presence. For we dare not class ourselves, verse twelve, or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. They measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. What's the point here? What's Paul saying? Yeah. Who who do we, who do we compare ourselves to? Who should you be comparing yourselves to? Christ. Christ. These are mild. You know, I'm saying, well, you know, I I'm a better Christian than C over there. I'm a better Christian than him. You know, that's two lumps of coal, you know, boasting about which one's not quite as black as the other. Right. We can't compare ourselves. And what were these what were these false teachers doing? They were comparing themselves with what? With each other. And they were comparing themselves with Paul. Paul saying, "I'm not going to fall in the battle trying to compare myself with other people. That's not a wise thing to do." Yeah, the the followers they have, and also. Where, where, you know, they're trying to compare their ministry to someone else's ministry. That's one of the things here. You can't compare your ministry to someone else's. Yeah. You know, all oh, you have a big, my church is bigger than your church. Well, my church is bigger than your church. Well, my church gives more than your, well, you know, we compare ourselves. And we like to make ourselves think that we're something. That's not a wise thing to do. You don't compare. Here, here's here's what amazes me, folks. What amazes me is not why is God using someone else. Why is he using me? And it's not my job to compare my ministry with your ministry. I'm, I'm to realize that who do I work for? Who am I accountable to? Christ. I'm not accountable to you. And you're not accountable to me. Now, what I am accountable to is the truth of the word of God. That's different. That's, that's you know, different. When you look at somebody's ministry saying they you know, I, I, I go in here and I, I, go, I get on Benny Hinn. I'm not getting on Benny Hinn because I'm comparing myself to Benny Hinn. I'm getting on Benny Hinn because the guy teaches heresy. There's a difference there, all right? But when you start comparing yourselves to other people, it's not about making yourself think, because that's why, why do you compare yourself to someone else? What's your motive for comparing yourself to someone else? You Make yourself think you're better than them. That's not a wise thing to do. Paul saying, I'm not going to fall into that trap. We will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed to us, a sphere which especially includes you. What's Paul's focus? What, is, what ministry has God given me? Not what ministry has God given you, and how is your ministry compared to my ministry? What has God given to me? And how am I going to be rewarded, and how am I going to be held accountable to the ministry God has given me? God has given some of us in here five talents. God has given some of us three talents. Some of us got two Some of us got one, but we're all responsible to do what we, be faithful with what God has given us. And to not go around comparing ourselves with someone else. And what were these false teachers doing? How were they making themselves out to be good? Well, they were comparing themselves to Paul, trying to trash his motives, his ministry. That's how they were doing it. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Paul says, my ministry, which includes you, is not me overextending my authority in the ministry. Why? Because I'm the one that brought you the gospel. I'm the one that preached to you. I'm the one that came there not boasting of things beyond measure that is in other men's labors but having hope that as your faith is increased we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment boiling this down Paul is saying my focus is on the task that God has given me the faithfulness with which I'm going to do what guys within my sphere my realm of ministry. And I'm not going to worry about somebody else's realm of ministry. I'm not going to be comparing what I'm doing with somebody else. I'm not going to get caught up. And that, that's one of the great tragedies, I think, in pastors, you know, things like that. You know, a pastor has a small church and he's faithful. And sometimes he can get the idea that, well, you know, I'm, I'm not as, I guess I'm not as godly as that guy down the road with the 5,000 people going to his church. You can't get yourself into that trap. That'll drive you bananas. Paul is saying, I'm concerned with the sphere that God has given me to minister there. That sphere includes you because I brought the gospel to you. But I'm focusing on the sphere of ministry that God's granted me. And I'm not trying to enlarge my sphere of ministry by taking it from some other guy. All right? By, by, by trying to... Push him down so that I'm raised up. We all work for Christ. By the way, who are you going to stand before and give an account of? Your ministry. Christ. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I am not going to be sitting next to him evaluating you. He's going to be evaluating you. And he's going to be evaluating me. And the question is not, how did I compare to you? The question is, how did I do with what God has given me? How have I ministered within the sphere that God has granted me? And am I being faithful within that sphere? Not somebody else's sphere, but my sphere of ministry. I'm not boasting in somebody else's accomplishments. I'm looking at what God has granted me to do. But he who glories, let him glory what? The Lord. One of the great tragedies of ministry, someone has a successful church and it goes through their head. And you got a billion little guys trying to emulate their ministry after the guy who's made the success. Then that guy thinks of himself as something when he's nothing. Don't look at the size of your ministry. I like what John MacArthur said. He says, when I became a pastor, I purposed to never worry about the breadth of my ministry. I'm worried about its depth. Let God take care of the breadth. You worry about the depth of your ministry. You worry about being a faithful servant wherever God has set you. Let him worry about the breadth of it. Let him worry about how big your sphere gets. You worry about the quality of it. And the problem with a lot of pastors today is they're more concerned about, I need a big church. I want a lot of people, you know. I want to be the pastor of the mega church. Paul's saying, if you want to glory, glory in what? The Lord. Not in yourself. By the way, let's stop and think about this whole success deal who was the greatest preacher that ever lived? How many disciples did he have when it was all said and done? 120. In the upper room, how many were there? 120. Now, what did Christ do? He raised the dead. He healed people. Miracle after miracle. How many people did he really have? When it was all said and done, how many showed up? 120. 120. Greatest preacher that ever lived had 120. Look, folks, worry about the breadth or the depth. God will take care of the breadth. Paul's saying, I'm not going to walk around trying to compare myself to this guy, compare my ministry to him and say, I'm better than that guy because I got more influence. and I've been here and he hasn't, and, you know, that's a dead end. If you to, if, if Paul says, I'm going to glory, I'm going to glory in the, in Christ, not in anything else. For he who for not he who commends himself is approved but whom the Lord commends. well here's the whole point. it doesn't matter what you think of yourself right? Because you're not the one rewarding yourself who's going to ultimately reward you? and it's not what you think that me it matters anything right? Who's it, who does it matter to? God. Does it matter? I, I got to use... My 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 uh, nephew's got me interested a little bit in this whole American Idol thing, you know. Sanjaya thinks he's the greatest thing to strut on that stage, but you know what? Ultimately, it doesn't matter what he thinks, right? He's, he, now he's skated by, I think, far longer than he should have at this point. But the whole point is, it doesn't matter what I think of myself. It doesn't matter. I could think of myself, I'm the greatest Bible teacher that ever lived. You know what? It doesn't matter what I think. Because someday I'm going to stand before God, and God is going to tell me what he thinks. And his is the only opinion that counts. And what you think, here's the other thing, what you think of my ministry is irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. God's not going to commend me based on, well, you know, I pulled a bunch of people in your classes and they think pretty good of you, so, you know, I'm going I'm to rate you this way. No, it doesn't work that way. Right? It's not who commends themselves that matters. Who does God commend? That's what matters. What does God think? Now, what do you think? What does God think? Absolutely. And that's what Paul's trying to get at here. You've got these false teachers going around commending themselves, and comparing their ministries and all of this kind of stuff. And Paul says, you know, that doesn't matter anything because it's not what they think about their ministry that matters. So what does God think about the ministry? That that's what really makes it. And Paul says, I'm much more interested in what God thinks than I am in what anybody else thinks.
0: Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.